And so, Lord, may we learn uh, from their mistakes so we don't have to make the same ones. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, Paul and his missionary journeys heads to the seaport city of Corinth. One thing you'll find about seaport cities is that they're usually far more socially and politically liberal than mainland. That goes back, that, by the way, that statement's true, going back for millennia. You go into the heart, uh, the, the farmland of a country, and they are generally uh, much more conservative folks, and then you get to a big city or you, where you get next to water, people are less conservative. Uh, and you say, well, why is that? Well, when you put people on top of people, and, and, and let's set the politics for, to the side. I'm I not saying this at all to be political, all right? I, I don't like getting political. I, let's just talk about this from a conservative uh, morality, liberal morality uh, type setup. But when you get people uh, uh, in big cities, sin gets next to sin, and uh, people's sin seems to amplify each other until the place where sin is everywhere. Sin is everywhere. Uh, if you want, if you're a police officer, if you're a police department and you want to bust a prostitution ring, you're probably not going to find one in a city of 250 people that are sprawled out on farmland. But you probably can find one on several corners in a big city. Why is that? You get that many people close together and sinners affect sinners and you have a greater concentration of sin. You say, well, that makes sense for the big cities. But, Pastor, what about the seaport cities like Corinth? Why, did, why do seaport cities seem to struggle? Well, the reason is, is that you have all kinds of people come from all kinds of other countries into those seaports and settle in. And so they bring their liberal views and their sinful living in, and there's an integration effect that happens, whether the city is uh, big or small. Such was the case in Corinth. It was a transient city. It was a city where many people came and went. It was a city that entertained many different types of uh, cultures and traditions and religions and looked to cater uh, to many of them. So Paul goes into Corinth and he finds these rich pagan people and he starts preaching the gospel to them. And many of them uh, come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, some Greek, some, uh, some Jew. Many of them get saved and he establishes a church. He gets it up and going and then off he goes on to the next place. Once he's down the road a ways and the church has had a chance to kind of go from that infant stage into more of a toddler uh, um, uh, walking type stage, reports start coming back to him, hey, Paul, that church in Corinth that you found it, let me tell you, they are struggling. They are deeply struggling. They are a sin that is plagued with almost every sin imaginable. And it is a, it is a wild, unorganized, fighting, divisive church. And uh, Paul, uh, uh, that church, you, you, you need to do something about it. You are the one that planted that church. Yes, it's Christ's church, but you planted it. So Paul sat down and he wrote the book of First Corinthians. And at the time, it would have just been Corinthians. He would later write a second letter, which we'll look at at another time. And uh, the book of Corinthians, in essence, is five short essays addressing five separate sins that the church 
was struggling with. And in every single case where he dealt with the sin in the church, his answer involved the gospel. The gospel. In essence, what Paul was saying to this church of Corinth is, is, hey, you say you believe in Jesus for salvation. You say you believe in the gospel. But in these areas, you are not applying the gospel in a way that is honest and fair and true to your claim of Christianity. So where you see a church that is struggling with sin corporately, where you see a church that is straying from truth, they are not doing the gospel of Jesus Christ justice. And what we learn is that in the Christian's life, in the Christian life, the gospel is always the answer for our struggle. We're getting away from those truths and those precepts of gospel living, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, and the commission of Christ beyond that resurrection. And so Paul, in essence, he he lays out five different struggles and shows them how they are straying from the gospel and how that the gospel of Jesus Christ can give them victory if they'll just return to that. So we're going to look at uh, the... Uh, First two of the five sections tonight, we'll look at sections three, four, and five, or sin struggles three, four, and five next week, uh, the Lord permitting, if he doesn't return. So let's jump in tonight, and let's look at the first two struggles of the church of Corinth. So in section one, we're going to look at the church's sin and its schisms over personalities. Schisms over personalities. This covers chapters 1 through 4. Chapters 1 through 4, Paul writes, in essence, a short essay to this church through the inspiration of Jesus Christ. And he addresses the schisms or the divisions that they're having over various personalities in the church. And Paul doesn't pull any punches with them. Paul is straightforward with them and tells them, guys, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. First notice their contentions. Their contentions. Look down at chapter 1 and uh, verse number 10. It says, Now I beseech or I beg you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them that are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you, contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, or Peter, and I of Christ. Look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So here you have uh, the Apostle Paul, like I said, went into the city and he found a bunch of pagan heathen people and he preached the gospel to them and a bunch of them got saved and he established a church and it began to grow and he got it to where it was self-governing, self-running. He got them a pastor most likely and on down the road he went to start the next church and somewhere along the line they brought in Apollos to be a guest speaker at the Corinth Baptist Church. And it wasn't a Baptist church, but you know, the Corinth Church here. And so in comes Apollos. And, you know, Paul was more of an in-your-face, let-it-fly, nail-your-high-to-the-wall preacher. If you read Paul's writings, you learn that he was a hellfire-and-brimstone kind of dude. He was a 
He was a Old Testament prophet in the New Testament era. Okay, how was his style? In comes Apollos, and Apollos is going to let us reason together. Let me teach you. And so you have the the hot under the collar, in your face, Paul, and then you have the soft teaching Apollos. And the people that loved Paul's preaching probably didn't like Apollos as much. But the people that just tolerated Paul's preaching, boy, they perked up when Apollos came in. Ooh, we like this Apollos guy. Now, the truth is, Apollos and Paul were preaching the same gospel. But their styles were different. Well, Apollos leaves, and in comes Cephas, or Peter, the Apostle Peter. And Peter had a one-week revival service, right? And he, he's preaching away, and his style's different than Apollos and, uh, and Peter, uh, or rather Paul. Paul is the in-your-face, let-it-fly, hellfire brimstone, and, and, and some of this I'm speculating on, but Apollos is the, the teacher, and, and in comes Paul, uh, Peter, and he's more of a hybrid. Sometimes he's in your face, and sometimes he's a teacher, and sometimes he's both in the same message. And there are people that go, you know, uh, uh, I like a, a guy that preaches with passion, but not like Paul. And I like a guy that teaches, but doesn't put me to sleep like Apollos. Man, Peter is right there in the middle. And then you have the pious snobs in the church. And they say, I... And not of any of these. I am of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all these contentions and divisions. And over here in this corner, uh, over here on this side, you got you got the Paul uh, uh, crowd. Uh, we're for Paul. And then over here, you've got the Peter crowd. We're for Peter. And over here, you got the Apollos crowd. Yeah, we we don't like Paul. Uh, we don't like Peter. We we, we want to follow Apollos and his style and his and his uh, uh, idiosyncrasies. And then over here, you got the Pharisees. We're of Christ. We're not for any of those. And there may have been some in that crowd that were genuine. But the point is, you have divisions over personalities. Now, some people get all hung up on the style of the preacher. All hung up on that. I want a guy who's going to scream and holler at the top of his lungs for 45 minutes. And other people say, I don't want a guy who's going to scream and holler at all. I want a guy who's just going to get up and teach the Word of God. And, And Paul would say in other books to other believers, it doesn't matter. The important thing is that Christ is preached. That's what matters. And he steps back and says, listen, all these personalities that you're being divided over, they're all representing the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not Paul you need to follow. Paul didn't save you. And, 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 and Apollos and Peter, they didn't save you. Jesus saved you. You say, well, pastor, how does that apply today? Listen, I have been in churches where you've got the Hiles crowd over here, you got the West Coast crowd over here. You got the Sword of the Lord crowd over here. You got the Revival Fires crowd over here. If you don't know who all these groups are, you're probably better off for it, to be honest. You've got this camp and this camp. And man, this camp over here, the tiles, they go to every pastor school and every conference every time. And they, they bow toward Hammond, Indiana. And then over here, you got the West Coast crowd, man. They're all things Paul Chapel. And these are the leaders of these ministries, right? And they're all about that. And the Sword of the Lord crowd, they, they, they take a voyage to Winston-Salem, North Carolina for that Sword of the Lord conference every year. And these people don't talk to those people. And those people don't talk to those people. And you got all this in 
infighting. You say, well, pastor, aren't you glad we don't have that here? I am so thankful that's not a problem here. But I got to tell you, it is a problem in a whole lot of churches. And to that I say, stop it. Stop it. You don't need to be in anybody's camp except the Lord Jesus Christ. This church had a problem with being contentious as they were grouping around personalities. I got to say this is I was this trip I took with my father. We were talking and and uh, and and he was telling me I was talking about just a struggle here or there and and he said, well, you know, you ought to be glad people are not flocking to your church because you have some big exciting personality. And and I had one of those moments of clarity. And I said to my dad, I said, you know, I'm thankful God gave me the personality he gave me. I don't have the most magnetic personality that I've met. I've met people that are much more magnetic in nature than I am, much more likable than I am. And I work at being likable, but it doesn't come as natural to me as other people. But I don't believe God has given me a repulsive personality. I I fall somewhere in the middle. I don't draw people to me naturally. I don't push people away naturally. There are going to be some people that feel pulled and some people that feel pushed away uh, in the grand scheme of things. But the average person, they're not coming to church to hang their hat on Richard Lejeune. My prayer is that people are coming to church at White Oak Baptist Church because they love the Lord Jesus Christ. And it needs to be His church, not my church. Never, ever, 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 ever pick a church or even a Sunday school class within this church over personality. You pick the leaders that you want to follow based on the Lord Jesus Christ and how He's taught and lifted up. You make Jesus the center. Notice, secondly, their their carnality. Their carnality. Turn over to chapter 3, and Paul is going to just... I told you, Paul is hellfire and brimstone, man. He just told it how it was. And uh, under the inspiration of the Lord Jesus Christ, and, or rather the Holy Spirit in writing this, but he, he doesn't pull any punches with them. He tells them why it is they're being contentious. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Now he's taking to somewhat insulting them. He's saying, you all are little babies. You're carnal. Verse 2. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, uh, uh, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal. Second time in three verses, he's told them they're carnal or living in the flesh. For whereas there is among you envying, and strife, and divisions. Are ye not carnal, third time in three verses, and walk as men? He says, hey, the reason why you guys are fighting and dividing over personalities in the church is because you're carnal. You're living through the flesh, not through the spirit. By the way, if you're not getting along at home, it's because you're carnal. Stop being carnal. Look at verse 4. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then uh, neither is he that planted anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. He says, listen, quit giving Paul and Apollos and Peter Any credit, it's God that gets the increase. It's God that gets the increase. So the reason why they struggled with this is because they were living in the flesh. One point I want to draw out quickly, and we'll move on here, is that if you you live 
your Christian life through the flesh and not the spirit, you can be saved for 20, 30, and 40 years and still be a baby in Christ. There are a whole lot of people that have been sitting in this church for many years or a church like this for many years, and you have a double digit and a high double digit of saved years behind your spiritual birthday, but you're still a little babe in Christ because you live in the flesh. Yes, you have all the Bible knowledge. You know how to turn to a minor prophet when the pastor announces that for the scripture reading, but you're still really not that mature in the Lord because when you're in the flesh, you can't grow. So here we see that Paul was saying, look, some of you uh, are are contentious, and the reason why you're contentious is because you're living in the flesh. Notice, uh, thirdly here under section 1, notice the credit. The credit. Who's supposed to get the credit for the people being saved in the church growing? Well, Paul, in chapters 1 through 4, goes way out of his way to give the credit to the right person. Look at verse 24 of chapter 1. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, um, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness... I love this verse. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Show me the most foolish thought God's ever had. And it blows away the wisest thought that any man's ever had. Show me the weakest part of God and I will show you a God who far exceeds in strength than the strongest man or the strength of even a group of men on earth. Verse 26, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that uh, not many wise men after the flesh... Not many mighty, not many mobile or, uh, noble are called, uh, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to... Uh, uh, not to bring to naught uh, things that are, uh, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now, we, these verses are, are used a lot in churches to talk about how God uses the weak to the mighty and, and all that. And i got to tell you, up until I was studying this message, I never really understood what the, the greater point Paul was trying to make here. here was the, here's the greater point. Paul's trying to say God uses weak people to do great things. In this context... You all are bowing down at the altar of Paul and Cephas or Peter and Apollos. Paul is a weak person that God used to start this church. Apollos is a weak person God used to water. Paul or Cephas is a weak person that God used to pluck the fruit. But it's not about Paul, Apollos or Cephas because they're weak men. The best of men are men at best, and all men are sinners. Quit bowing down to these folks and bow down over here to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and finisher of your faith. That's where it is. Who is who gets the credit? Who gets the credit for the church of Corinth being started? Who gets the credit for the souls being saved? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same for White Oak Baptist Church. So what is Paul's solution to this church that can't seem to do anything but be contentious? Well, Paul's solution is uh, this. In essence of the gospel, the gospel provides unity. The gospel provides unity. That can go up on the screen there, Brother Matt. The gospel provides unity. Unity. So, uh, again, we talked about that every sin problem they had came down to one thing. 
They were focusing, or they were not properly executing the gospel in that area. They were claiming to be saved, but neglecting how the gospel worked in that area. So, look at chapter 3, in verse number 6. We're going to read down through verse 15. Um, so, so, follow the thought process here, okay? And, and look here and see how they were leaving out the, the, the unifying message of the gospel in their church. Uh, again, Paul speaking, I have planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So uh, then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now, he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. I love the pronoun usage in verse 9. For we, for we, I have that underlined and circled in my Bible. For we are laborers Together with God, ye are God's husbandry, uh, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, uh, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, another, another buildeth thereon, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ, and we'll, uh, verse 12 through 15 just talks about how the building up of that foundation will one day be tried by fire at the judgment seat of Christ. But who is the foundation? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus. Paul said, I came in and I am the physical reason why the foundation was laid. But make no mistake about it, I'm not the foundation of the church. I came in and helped lay the foundation, but the foundation is Jesus He is your personal uh, foundation for your personal salvation. And He is the foundation of this church. What this church had done is it had forgotten that that gospel message is to provide unity. Can I just say this this evening is that if you are here and there is somebody in this church you don't get along with, and a church that runs 200 folks probably has close to 300 people that that call this place theirs uh, loosely or, 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 uh, or, or faithfully, um, chances are there's somebody in this church that doesn't like somebody else in this church. Can I remind you that that person's not the enemy? Satan is the enemy. You say, well, they're acting like Satan. Then you act like Jesus. Matthew 5, still says, love your enemies, do good to them, and curse you, pray for them, that despitefully use you. You say, wow, you know that verse well. I've had to memorize it. Because I've had people in my life that I didn't love and didn't love me. And I had to memorize that verse because I had to work at it. And I don't have it all figured out, but my friend, God has been working on me in that area for years. For years. That person's not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. And as long as Satan can get us in the pews to do this, we're not attacking him. We're not reaching souls. So chapters 1 through 4 deal with this very thought of schisms over personality. And let's remember, we're all saved. We're part of the family of God. And one day, you're going to live in heaven with that person forever. I have wondered if God is not in heaven one day, out of a sense of humor, going to gather all the Christians on the planet that I struggle with the most and make them my neighbors in heaven. You know, there are probably, I don't know, a handful of people. If you were to lock me in a room with them, ooh, it'd be rough. It'd be rough. Am I alone in that? Do all of you have four or five or six 
Christians somewhere on the planet that you just would rather not, you know, go get lunch with? I love them in a distance. I don't wish any evil on them, but they're not my best friends. I have a feeling God's going to make them my neighbors in heaven. The Bible, or the Bible doesn't say this unless I write it on the inside of my Bible. <laughs> um, uh, but there's a cute little poem my dad uh, has, has shared with me many times. To live above with saints we love, that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, now that's another story. <laughs> and uh, I can say that that's definitely true. But uh, one day we'll be in heaven. And do you know why we will all get along? We'll love each other in perfect peace because the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to completely sanctify us and make us whole. So why not start practicing that today? Let's move on to the second section of the book and look at the second sin of the church. The church's sin. Look around here. Okay, good. Sex sins. Sex sins. This church had a major problem with sexuality. Now, we're going to look at biblical evidence of that in a minute. Let me share with you some historical evidence. The church of Corinth was a very pagan city. Uh, people who have done archaeological digs on Corinth and historians that have written about Corinth talk about public bathing pools where people walked around without a stitch of clothing on around each other and would just bathe next to each other. And there was a lot of there was a lot of fornication that went on uh, publicly, openly. Um, currently, uh, we had a missionary come here, uh, my first year here, and and he shared that uh, he had his boys. This is a missionary to Bulgaria. He had his teenage boys in the car. They're driving somewhere, and they look out the window, and there is a pornography scene being recorded on the park bench as they're driving by. That kind of stuff does happen in 2018. Thankfully, not here in the U.S. At least. It's not common in the U.S., uh, but that type of stuff happens in parts of the world. Now, you say, well, the world's worse today than it's ever been. Well, hold on a minute. There was lewdness. There's been lewdness around in some senses all throughout humanity. And, and, and this wasn't just outside the church. You see... Going even back to the Old Testament, you find this with, with Asheroth and some of the female uh, uh, pagan worship there. But there were temples in Corinth where the priestesses of the temples were prostitutes. There were most likely men who were part of Corinth Baptist Church going into the temple, sleeping with prostitutes on Friday, and then showing up at church on Sunday like, hey, everything's great. The grace of God is bottomless. And Paul's saying, whoa, hold it, hold the phone on that. While the grace of God is rich and full and, and there, that does not mean the chastening hand of God is not present. Now, that is historical uh, data about the city of Corinth, but the, the book here gives us uh, uh, one example, one little window into the church and its, struck, uh, and its struggle with, uh, with sex sins or immorality. Notice there, first of all, their acceptance of immorality. Their acceptance of immorality. Look at verse number 1. It says, it is uh, reported commonly, that there is fornication among you. So it wasn't just this one instance that's about to be listed. 
This was a problem that was running rampant in the church. It says there, And such fornication as is not so much as named uh, among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. There was somebody in the church who is sleeping with his mother-in-law. Or rather, I'm sorry, with his stepmom. Look at verse 2. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. So this guy was sleeping with his stepmom, coming to church. Everybody knew it, and everyone was just accepting it. No one cared. Verse 3. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that hath uh, uh, so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such as one unto Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, and the spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Uh, our Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Look at verse 9. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Not to company with fornicators. Now, in 2018 in the U.S. of A., what I'm about to say is not popular, even amongst my pastoral brethren. I have an obligation as the pastor that if there is a church member who is committing some sort of sex sin, to discipline them with church discipline. I have an obligation. Peter or Paul says here to the church, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. You're not to keep company with a fornicator. You're not to keep company with a fornicator. This church has just grown to a place of accepting it. And unfortunately, in the church era that we're in now, many churches throw their arms wide open and let every single persuasion and every single lifestyle into the membership of their church. Couples that live together are being voted on to church roles. Lesbian and gay couples are being voted on to church roles. People who are having premarital sex are being voted on to church roles and kept on church roles when the pastor knows it's going on. How do we expect God to bless this church if we're not showing some sort of sexual integrity? As a congregation. Now let me be clear. If someone walks in the back door of our church and wants to attend a service, they're not living with sexual integrity. They're invited to come and listen to the sermon. They're invited to come and be a part of us uh, as far as that goes. But the membership role of the church must be protected. There must be a purity amongst that. And someone of that persuasion, someone that's doing those things, they need to feel uncomfortable here to a place of either changing to get their heart right in line with God or to the place where they leave. There is no acceptance of immorality in a place of purity. And the church needs to be purified and made pure. This church had accepted Immorality and got to a place where they yawned at it at, at, at best 
and gloated and glorified it at worst. So we see the acceptance of immorality. Next, notice their atonement from immorality. Their atonement from immorality. Now, let, let me just, before we move on to that, let me just add this. Nothing would hurt my heart more than to have to vote someone off the church roll because of sin. It would crush me. Crush me. But as a pastor, chapters five, chapter 5, 1 through 9 is in the Bible. We cannot allow sin to stay in the church. If you are here tonight and you are struggling with immorality in your life, let me encourage you to confess it and get it right. Don't pull the church down because of your sin. Don't hinder the growth and outreach of this church because of your sexual misbehavior. You say, well, Pastor, would God really curse this church or keep this church from growing because of my sin or because of the sin of someone doing that? Yes. Go back and read chapters 5, 1 through 9. Chapter 5, 1 through 9. Yes, he will. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Go back and read the story in Judges about Achan's sin and how that hindered the whole, the whole, uh, the whole country of Israel. How they had 38 men killed at Ai because of one man's uh, 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 sin. The acceptance of immorality. Let's look at the atonement from immorality. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. Paul reminds this church who was struggling with this, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed. You see that? Ye are washed. Ye are washed. Ye are sanctified. Ye are justified in the name of of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Hey, Paul was reminding these folks, you were a fornicator. You were an idolater. You were covetous. You were effeminate. You were abuser of yourself with mankind, use the Bible term. Now you're saved. Hey, you're to leave that stuff behind. You're, you're not to continue to participate uh, uh, in, in sin that you have been redeemed of, washed, uh, had, had washed off your record. The atonement. I'm so glad that God has washed away my sin. I'm so glad that God has given me the ability to have victory in areas that would have been struggles had I not been saved at a young age or even can be struggles as a saved person, but uh, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And I'm thankful for that. Number uh, Next, notice the abstinence from immorality. The abstinence from immorality. Look at chapter 6, verse 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot, or she that is joined to a whoremonger, is one body? For two, saith he, 
shall be one flesh, but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication uh, uh, sinneth against his own body. God's very clear here that he calls the Christian to a life of abstinence prior to marriage. Prior to marriage. Um, How do you define fornication? Well, you can write the words sex sins on a piece of paper and circle it. Anything that fits inside that circle is fornication. Anything. Adultery, um, uh, pornography. um, uh, Let me say this here. Pornography is generally a struggle for men, although some women do struggle with it. Ladies, it can be erotic romance novels. A lot of women in this day and era, this day and time, struggle with erotic romance novels because it's verbal and it, 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 it puts in your mind a fantasy that you wish that you could have. That's, that, that is fornication. God's called us to abstinence. If you're here tonight and you are in a dating relationship or you could potentially soon or at some point be in a dating relationship, let me remind you God has called you to celibacy until you're married. He's called you to abstinence until you're married. Don't play with fire or you will get burned. Don't don't be caught up getting physical with the other gender or you will end up sleeping together. Next notice, the um, hold on. To back that point up, look at chapter 7 and verse 1. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man... Not to touch a woman. This is speaking of two unmarried people. Now, I, uh, I just made this point a couple of Sunday nights ago on Christian dating. But to do this series and this message justice, I'm going to make it again. And I'll, I'll be uh, quick on this. But um, the, the, the line in the sand. Everybody listen. The line in uh, the, the line God has drawn uh, uh, that is sin is fornication or the act of a man and a woman sleeping together outside of the bonds of marriage. That is the line. That is the hard line in the sand. The not Pastor Lejeune. Let me be clear here. Not Pastor Lejeune. The Apostle Paul put the standard at not touching. That's not me. I didn't do that. The Apostle Paul put it there. The Apostle Paul says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. The reason is, is you sit close together in church and you go to hand-holding, you go to hugging, you go to kissing, you go to making out, you go to fondling, and the next thing you know, you're sleeping together. And that train doesn't stop. That train doesn't stop. Nobody here, nobody here has enough self-control to stop that train. So just don't start it down the tracks. Abstinence. You know why? Because your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. We'll get into that more in a minute. Next, notice the admonishment of the unmarried. The admonishment of, or probably the better uh, preposition there would have been for. The admonishment for the unmarried. Look at chapter 7 and verse number 6. Now, Paul is single, living a life of abstinence and celibacy. And Paul, in writing this book calls out to the Lord and says, can I have permission to write a little something, something in here? And God says, go ahead, Paul, you can write that in there. So this is Paul, permission from the Lord. This is not coming from God. This is coming from Paul. Look at chapter 7, verse 6. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment. So God did not tell him to write this down. He got 
he got permission from the Lord to write this. For I would that all men were even as myself, but every man that is proper gift of God, uh, one after this manner and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they uh, abide even as I. So Paul said, look, if you're single or you're a widow, stay single if you can. If you can, stay single. Now, why would Paul say that? Let me show you why. Uh, look down with me at uh, chapter, uh, chapter, uh, rather, chapter 7, verse number 32. He goes into the reasoning of this. But I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. There is difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. But she that is married careth for the things of the world, how that she may please her husband. And this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast out a snare unto you, but uh, for that which is comely, and that ye may attend unto the Lord without distraction. Paul was, Paul was saying, look, if you're unmarried... You can care for the things of the Lord. If you're married, you got to care for the things of the world. You know what I'm doing a lot of times um, uh, on a on a uh, on on in an evening. My wife says to me, "Oh, I ran out of milk, or I ran out of bread, or I need this from the store, or we're low on shampoo, or we need this toiletry." You know what I'm doing? I'm hopping in the car and I'm heading to Walmart. Walmart is the fifty-dollar world, right? It's hard to spend less than $50 at Walmart. And you know what I'm doing? I'm tending for the things of the world to take care of her. You know what my wife is doing when she's married to me? She's cooking dinner. She's doing my laundry. Glory, hallelujah. I hate doing laundry. She's ironing my clothes. She's making the bed. She's picking up after me. She's, she's tending to the things of the world because she's married to me. And Paul says, look, being married's great. Being married's wonderful. But if you're not married, you don't have to devote your time and energy to another person to tend to the things of the world. You get to tend to the things of God all the time. Paul said, look, I get to travel on three missionary journeys and plant all these churches and do all this work for the Lord because I don't have a wife that's tying me to a home base. And I am to the place where I have been able to deal with my sexual longings and desires and be a man of celibacy so that I can sell out to God. And Paul said, if you're a man or a woman and you can do the same thing, then follow that example. Now, notice here, uh, lastly, uh, their avenue for sexual well-being. Now, to all the married people here tonight, this is for you. Turn over to chapter 7 and verse number 2. If you're not married and you want to tune me out, I give you permission to tune me out right here. If you are married or you hope to be married or you're dating or on your way to being married, then this would be a good thing to pay attention to. Chapter 7, verse number 2. It says, Nevertheless, to avoid avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body. All the women underline that part. But the husband... And likewise, men underline this part, also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Look at verse 5. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may be able to give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your in 
content and see. Now, if you're here tonight and you're married, you have an obligation to steward the body of your spouse. You have an obligation. You say, well, I'm mad at him. It doesn't matter. You say, well, she doesn't treat me right, so I'm, I'm going to withhold uh, my sexuality from her to punish her. Or I'm going to take it out by looking at images on my phone or at some magazine somewhere. My friend, God has called you to steward your spouse's body and to take care of it. Ladies, your husband wakes up tomorrow morning and he gets up to go out the door to go to work and he's driving to work and there's a low-cut shirted woman on a billboard somewhere with some sort of a sensual lure his direction. Have you done your part to take care of him so he's not tempted by that? He's like, you can't say that. I just did. He gets to work and there's some secretary who's wearing a, uh, a uh, pencil skirt and a low-cut shirt. And every curve she has is accentuated. And she happens to walk past his desk just a little bit extra. And she wiggles a little bit harder when she walks by. Is your husband going to be tempted uh, her direction because you're not doing your part to take care of him? Your husband has uh, uh, can't fall asleep at night time, and he wakes up in the middle of the night and he turns on the TV in the living room to watch Sports Center for the 14th time, or watch a rerun of Fox News, or whatever uh, uh, show it is. And he notices on the TV guide that there's some sleazy bikini shoot on TV. Have you done your part to take care of him so he's not tempted to turn over there? If you're doing your part and he's still looking at that stuff, shame on him. But a lot of men, a lot of men struggle. With lust, because their wife will not step on the gas pedal a little bit and pick it up, pick up the pace. Men, are you doing your part to to understand your wife's emotional state? Are you doing your part to connect with your wife outside of the bedroom so that there is a desire for her to connect with you in the bedroom? A lot of men want to walk in the door from work. They want to grab something to eat, plop down in the chair, say nothing to their wife, walk in the bedroom, and expect everything to be exactly the way they want it. My friend, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You treat her the way that a man ought to treat his wife. You date your wife all the way to the grave. All the way to the grave. You make sure she doesn't have to look outside the marriage to be pleased and to find that relationship and that connection and that person that can understand. She better know that she can talk to you about anything at any time and you're going to drop what you're doing outside of some obligation and you're going to take care of her. We have a right. We have a duty as married people to defraud not the other. Defraud not the other. Look down at verse number 8. I'm almost done. I say therefore... To the unmarried and widows, it is good for them uh, uh, if they abide even as I. Verse 9, but if they cannot contain, if they cannot, uh, 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 if they cannot handle uh, the, 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 the sexual desires inside of them, they can't keep those tamed, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. So there is an obligation and duty there to stay with your husband, and you can read on down for uh, more on that. But there is an avenue for sexual well-being. To those of you here that are unmarried tonight, let me just say this strong and hard. This is not Pastor Lejeune being mean to you. This is the Word of God being straightforward and on top of something that our culture has has tried to twist and convolute, premarital sex is a sin. 
It is a sin. It is a sin. It is a sin. It is a sin. And it's a deep sin. It is a greater sin than any other sin in the Bible. I'll prove it to you. Turn it back over to chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. And I close with this. And, and let me just say this. Paul's solution, this is the last slide, the gospel provides sexual integrity. Turn back to chapter 6 and look at verse number 18. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body or her own body. Sinning against your own body. Now look at how you're sinning against your own body. What? You can hear Paul being emphatic, sharp, and even slightly sarcastic. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple, the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The reason why it is such a horrible tragedy for a Christian to have premarital sex or extramarital sex or to have sexual pleasure outside the bonds of marriage is because that body is what's being defiled and that body is the temple that encases and houses the Holy Spirit of God. And you're sinning directly against the Holy Spirit of God. Listen, uh, the, the gospel proves that because you're saved, that body of yours can have sexual integrity. You can stand before God one day with that new body that's been sanctified and justified, and you will be given that body one day, but you can start living that integrity right now. One of the greatest, I'll finish with this, one of the greatest defining characteristics of a Christian in contrast to the world is sexual integrity. Christians should have sexual integrity when everybody out there that wants to have nothing to do with God, that calls the preaching of the cross foolishness, When all of them don't, Christians, their trademark ought to be that we're sexually pure. Let's make that our goal. Let's make that our goal. Whether you're married or single, whether you're going to be single the rest of your life, whether you hope to get married someday, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's be committed to God in this area. And all of us tonight, let's not wrap ourselves around a personality. Let's wrap ourselves around the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's have our heads bowed nice closed. We're not going to have an invitation this evening. I'll just uh, pray and then uh, we'll prepare to close the service. Lord, thank you tonight for the message. I pray that you would work in our hearts. Lord, uh, where there are those who are struggling in these areas, some of them are rather private. Lord, would they seek out counsel and help? And would they get that counsel and help? Lord, would you please have help us to have a church that has no leaven in it in this sense. A church, Lord, that is pure. A church that can grow because, Lord, we uh, are not defrauding our bodies. We're honoring you with our bodies and the temple that we, temples that we have. And then, Lord, when it comes to schisms over personalities, may we not gravitate to a personality, but, Lord, may we follow you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand to our feet to be dismissed. Thank you for coming to church this evening.